Good morning. My name is Matt. I am a pastor here on staff, and uh, it's good to see you here on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. Occasionally, I, I like to watch other people who do what I do, who get up here and speak, and um, I like to do that because I can learn from them, and I can grow from them, and, um, you know, I can get inspired by them. A few weeks ago, I was watching a message, uh, a sermon by someone, and the way that he began the sermon was by asking a question. And it was a question that was so uh, impactful. And I thought to myself, when I do the sermon that's going to be this Sunday, I got to do it just like that. And so I'm not stealing. I'm not ripping off. I prefer to think of it as borrowing from the experience and the wisdom of a fellow brother in Christ who, uh, you know, is part of this great cloud of witnesses. In other words, I'm ripping them off. Uh, but actually, this Sunday is the second Sunday of our four-part series that's leading up and through Easter, looking at four days that changed the world. And these are the four days that surround Jesus' death and resurrection. Last week, if you were here, you remember this. We talked about the Thursday before he died, the day before he died. It was the day where he had this meal over here with his closest uh, followers, the disciples. And the important thing to remember from last week is that this was uh, a Passover meal. Jesus chose to come to Jerusalem uh, and to die, to give his life and to be raised during the Passover. And Jesus chose that intentionally because the Passover was the celebration where uh, the Jewish people, God's people, remembered how God freed them from slavery. And he chose to do all of this at that time in order to say, my death, my resurrection, starting with this very meal, is about freedom. Freedom not just from the Egyptians, but freedom from everything that keeps us bound. Freedom from the worst things that keep us bound. Um, this is about freedom. So today, as Nancy said, we're talking about Friday. Good Friday. Um, this was the day uh, that Jesus, that Jesus uh, died on the cross. And it's an interesting and funny thing that we call it good. Because what's so good about uh, the guy who we follow being unfairly, unjustly, um, you know, arrested and condemned to death and tortured and humiliated and then executed. It's good because what happened on that Good Friday answers the question that we're going to start with, answers the question that's one of the most important questions I think any of us could ever ask. And it's a question that I think we all have asked before in one way or another. And if you've come to this church before, you have definitely asked this question in one way. And here's the question. What can wash away my sin? What can wash away my sin? This is a question that we all ask whether we know it or not. We've all faced this question whether we face it in this way or not. This is a question we've all wrestled with, we all deal with, whether we quite think of it like this or not. And um, a lot of it is because of that last word there, sin. Sin is a word that in our culture we don't use very well and we don't understand it very well anymore. Um, sin these days gets a bad rap. If you were to cut out a quote from this sermon and put it up online, please don't put out <laughs> sin these days gets a bad rap, right? Here's what I mean that by, by that, though. If you type in uh, sin in the Google machine, make sure your safe search is on. 
Uh, if you type in sin in the Google machine, and start with sinful, the thing that you get is a nail polish company called Sinful Colors that makes, I guess, sinful colored nail polish, like, ooh, red, right? And like, <laughs> ooh, ooh, blue. Uh, um, uh, this is where we get sinful, right? Um, there's a store in Red Bank that sells women's things to wear at night, right? It's called Sweetest Sin, right? Um, we think about sin, sinful things. We think about decadent chocolate that we love, or we think about like diet ice cream, right? Like, ooh, it's sinful to have a lot of it because it's a lot of it, but actually it's diet. So it's not that bad, but you feel bad because you're eating something that's like, you know, sinful, right? So the word sin, sinful, it's kind of this weird thing. And a lot of it for us comes from the cultures that we grew up in, the religious cultures that we did or didn't grow up in. For a lot of us, and I imagine for a lot of you, um, you grew up in a church where like everything felt like sin. Like the big things were sin, right? Killing people and, and, and stealing, that was sin. But then there's like that medium block of things, like lying, like lying's a sin. But on the other hand, like our parents and teachers tell us white lies about things. So like, I don't know, maybe it's not so sinful, but then also, um, like, chewing gum in church is a sin, right? And, like, getting out of line, like, that's a sin. And saying the wrong word in your prayer, it's a sin. Or there's a list of words that you can't say as a kid. Like, those are sin. And so what happens in a context where everything feels like sin, um, one thing is it can make God and his rules feel kind of petty or arbitrary. But the other thing is that if everything's a sin, what chance do we have, right? And so we just give up trying, or we give up caring, or we think, I don't know what sin is, but I can't possibly go by that. And so you just kind of move on from it as a concept. And sin isn't really something you care about anymore. Or maybe you grew up in a church context, a religious thing, where like a list of things were sinful, and they fit in a box. And they were kind of things where you could probably avoid them, and if you were able to avoid those sinful things, then you were clear, you were good to go. Um, but what happens is, you know, you, like, avoided them as long as your parents were, like, watching or, like, adults were in the room, right? Um, and you kind of thought, gosh, this is, this is kind of arbitrary. This, too, makes God seem kind of petty. His rules are kind of petty. Or it seems like his rules maybe are all about, um, uh, like, uh, keeping, keeping young people under control, right? Throbbing biological urges, that sort of thing. Um, and so sin is kind of arbitrary there. Or you grew up without that religious context. And so you grew up in a world, in a mind space, where you're thinking, yeah, sin has to do with nail polish and diet ice cream, right? Um, but when we kind of give a better definition to sin, and I'll give you a better definition, and this is kind of, um, it's broad, but it's also kind of to the point. Uh, sin is anything that falls short of loving God or loving your neighbor. Sin is whatever falls short of of love of God or love of neighbor. Um, when you give it that definition, which is also, which is very broad, but it's also kind of to the point, we realize we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of that. And whether it's the thing that you did and you know you did it and you can't move on from it, or whether it's the thing that you didn't do, that you should have done, but you didn't because you were too lazy or too scared or just too selfish, or the thing that you said that you can't take back, and now that's the final nail uh, in the relationship coffin. We all have done these things. We have all fallen short of that definition of what 
sin is. We are all sinners. And what happens is we all feel it. We all bear this weight, whether we know it or not. We all feel it. We all bear this weight. And it's something like a monkey or like a gorilla on our back. It's something like chains that are wrapped around us. Sometimes life can feel like we're walking through a quicksand pit and nothing works, right? We would all love to be able to put down that sin, to put down the effects of it, to put down that guilt and walk away from it. But we find out that we can't. We would love to free ourselves from that guilt, but we can. It's that feeling you get when you look into the mirror and don't like what you see because of what you remember about what you did with that girl that one time or with that guy that you're, do that you're doing it with now. Or the thing that you said to your spouse or the thing that you did to your kid or the way that you turn your back on your parent or on your brother, right? Or the thing that you did with the money that one time. Or the blind eye that you turned and someone got hurt because of it. Or the lie that you told that has, that has wreaked havoc, or the way that you put the knife in someone's back. It's the way um, that you feel because of that, and you can't shake that feeling. You would love for that feeling to go away, but you can't quite shake that feeling, and you can't forget. And so what happens is, um, every time you look that person in the eye, all you see is your failure in regards to them. Or when you walk into that room, all you remember is what happened there that one time. Or, or every time Christmas rolls around, or every time your kid's birthday rolls around, all you can remember is the thing that you did that one Christmas, the thing that you did that one birthday. And you would love to shake this feeling. You would love to free yourself of this guilt. You'd love to be able to forget, but you can't forget. And you've tried to forget. You have tried to forget it away. You have tried to wash it away. You have tried to distract it away. You've tried um, to self-improve it away. You've tried to shop it away. You've tried to drink it away. You've tried to buy it away. You've tried to remake yourself away. You've tried to find a new job it away. You've tried to have a baby it away. And you find that nothing can make you forget. Nothing can wash it away. What can wash away my sin? For some of you, you feel this acutely and it weighs heavily but for some of you you don't feel it it's there though do you remember the uh, famous Dickens story of Christmas Carol I mean of course you do right we've all uh, either read it if you haven't read it read it um, if you you know you've seen the play you've watched the movies um, you've seen the definitive Christmas Carol movie what is it no it's the Muppets Come on. The Muppets Christmas Carol hits every point. I mean, it is there. It is on point. Um, you know the story. Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, Jacob Marley, they are bankers, they're lenders, and they're ruthless, right? They are, they are cruel. They show no mercy. They will lock people out of their homes. Um, they will evict people in the middle of the winter. People starve. People die because of their cruelty, because of their greed, right? And you remember the story. Um, the, the ghosts of Jacob Marley comes to Scrooge in the middle of the night, and Scrooge looks at him, and he sees them, and he sees that uh, Marley's ghost is weighed down by chains. And do you remember what those chains are made out of? They're made out of cash boxes, and keys, and padlocks, and ledgers, and um, deeds, and pens, and things like this. Um, they, are, they are chains that are made out of uh, Marley's cruelty, basically. Scrooge says to him, he says, you are fettered. And to be fettered means to be bound up, like by a chain. 
Scrooge said to him, you are fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. Marley's ghost says to him, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will and of my own free will, I wore it. He says, it's a pattern strange to you? Marley uh, incredulously asks Scrooge, how can you not see this? How can you not see the cruelty um, that weighs you down? Scrooge trembled more and more. Marley replies, or would you know the weight and length and strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago, seven years ago that Marley died. You have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Scrooge glanced about him on the floor in the expectation of finding himself surrounded by some 50 or 60 fathoms of iron cable. But he could see nothing. For some of us, we carry this stuff around and we know it, it weighs us down. But for some of us, we don't know it. We don't know the chains that we have forged link by link. But that doesn't mean they don't weigh us down. It doesn't mean they don't limit our lives. It doesn't mean it doesn't imprison us. It doesn't mean uh, it doesn't threaten us. What can free us? What we're looking for when it comes down to it, we can't turn the clock back. We don't have the time stone. We can't turn back time, right? We can't undo what we've done. We can't make what we've done not happen. What we're looking for is forgiveness. What we're looking for is someone to come to us and say, I know what you did and what you did was wrong and here's the deal. I'm not going to hold it against you. I know what you did was wrong and I'm not going to count it against your ledger any longer. I'm not going to count it. What we're looking for is forgiveness. And the fact is, every religious system in the world offers some solution to this problem, some solution to guilt and forgiveness, every one of them. And every self-help aisle at the bookstore offers a solution to guilt and some way to find forgiveness. And every um, trick you could pull on yourself psychologically, every um, way you can make yourself better, every mode of self-improvement, every meme that you can proudly post that doesn't actually do anything for you, these all promise different ways um, of, of, of dealing with sin, of guilt, of forgiveness, but what we find is that none of them actually work. What works? What works? What can wash away my sin? What can free us? What can save us? What can cleanse us? About 2,000 years ago, there was a man named John. John wrote uh, a book about Jesus' life. It's called The Gospel of John. He wrote some other stuff too. And John was a man who was there with Jesus day by day and saw him. He listened to him. Um, he sat at the table next to him when they had this meal. They knew each other. John loved Jesus. Jesus loved John. John was an eyewitness. He was there. He saw it all. In the very beginning of John's Gospel, he wrote about another man named John. John the Baptist. It's not too confusing. He, they could have had different names. Um, he wrote about this man, John. John the Baptist was this guy who was, he was a little crazy. 
He was a preacher. Um, he had a crazy beard and crazy hair, and he would eat like bugs and all this sort of weird stuff, and he didn't fit. He actually happened to be Jesus' like cousin. What John the Baptist did was he went out to the Jordan River, which was miles from Jerusalem, which Jerusalem was like the center of where God was. He wasn't near that. He was out in the Jordan River, and he would baptize people, and he would preach crazy sermons. You would leave the room if you were preached like that, preached at like that, um, but people would flock to him. They would come to him, and he would baptize them, baptize them, baptize them. And one day, he was baptizing people, and he looked up at the crowds, and he said to them, you guys are looking for something. You're looking for someone, and you should be looking for him. You should be looking for something. I am not him. I am a sideshow. I am the amuse-bouche. I am the appetizer. The main course is coming. It's on its way. Um, there is one who is coming, and he actually is among you right now, and you don't even know him. But when this man comes, I am unworthy to even be in his presence. I am unworthy to tie this man's shoes. The next day, John is back at it again. He's baptizing, baptizing. All of a sudden, he looks up at the crowd, and out of the crowd comes Jesus. Comes Jesus walking towards him. And he says, look. Look, there he is. The guy who is coming, who I am unworthy to be in his presence, he's coming. He's here. Look, there he is. And then he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, God's Lamb, the Lamb that God sent. What can wash away my sin? He can. He can wash it away. He can take away my sin. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John uh, says the word takes away, what that word is, it's a very physical word. It's a very tangible, very concrete word. It means to pick up and to remove so that it's out of your way. Think about it like this. It's like what your garbage man does. Your garbage man comes to your house, he finds you, he finds your garbage, he picks it up with his own two hands, he puts it on his back, he throws it into the truck, and the truck drives it away so that that garbage is not at your house anymore. That garbage isn't stinking up your yard or overflowing your garbage can. He picks it up and he drives it away, he removes it so that he can destroy it, so that he can deal with your garbage so that you don't have to deal with it any longer. He picks it up and removes it. He takes it away. And it's not just our sins, plural. It's the sin of the world. Not just the lowercase sins that we all do, we're all a part of that, but it's the uppercase sin, capital S sin, that's at the root of the rotten tree that produces all of the rotten fruit of our lowercase sins. That's the sin that he deals with. Not just our little mistakes, but all of it, at the root of it. That's what he takes away. And it's not just your sin. It's not just our sin. It's their sin as well. It's not just us, the people who think the right way um, and look the right way and do the right things and try to live the right way. It's their sin too. It's the sin of the world. So it's not just, um, it's not just American sin, right? It's Mexican sin. It's Canadian sin. It's, it's, it's Iraqi sin and Iranian sin and Chinese and Russian sin. It's not just our sin, it's their sin. It's not just insider sin, it's outsider sin. This Lamb of God takes away the sin 
of the world. John calls him the Lamb of God. And for us, lambs are just animals, right? I mean, lambs give us wool, right? And lambs give us, um, you know, chops and, <laughs> and legs and shanks, right? I don't know what a shank is, but lambs give it to us. And um, lambs are cute, so we put them in our kids' rooms, right? Sleep sheep, everyone has one, right? Chicken in every pot, car in every garage, sleep sheep in every crib. That's what, that's what, that's what Hoover said. Um, lambs are cute to us. Lambs don't mean anything. They're just another animal that we like to eat, and they taste kind of good, and they're cute for our kids. Um, for the Jewish people, for God's people, lambs were at the very center of their lives. They were at the center of their religious lives for 1,500 years. I mean, really, dating back to that very first Passover, lambs were at the center of what they did of who they were as a people. Here's what I mean. Um, there was one, one lamb that we'll call the sacrificial lamb. And for 1,500 years, ever since that Passover, um, God gave them a rule. God gave them a law that every single day, a lamb was supposed to be slaughtered in the morning and the evening. And those lambs took away the sins of that day, of that, of that evening and of that day. And every single day for 1,500 years, uh, that's what God expected of his people. That's what his people did. Slaughtered two lambs a day um, in the temple or in the tent where they met. That's what happened. And the people, they knew. They knew that the blood of an animal was never going to be enough to actually pay for the sins of a human, for the blood of a human. They knew that that was never going to be a fair exchange, but it was their way of saying to God, thank you, God, that you have allowed this animal to die rather than us. Thank you that you were so gracious, but they knew they would have to do this day after day after day, and they did it for 1,500 years. That's a lot of lambs. They knew that. Um, they had to supply the lambs themselves. They had to pay for the lambs of their own flock, and the lamb that they supplied paid for the sins of the day, took away the sins of the day. The lamb that God supplies takes away the sin of the world for all time, for all space. That was the first lamb. There's another lamb, though, and it's the Passover lamb. And if you were here last week, we heard about this last week. This was um, God's people were enslaved in Egypt, and, uh, and there was all the plagues, and the final plague was that God's angel death spirit would come through and would kill all the firstborn uh, but God said to his people, look, here's what you have to do. You have to slaughter a lamb, take its blood, and put it on your doorpost. And when the angel comes through, it will literally pass over your house and your children will be safe. Um, and they did this, and uh, the people who trusted in the blood of that lamb to cover them woke up the next morning alive, but they woke up free from their slavery. And this is why the Jewish people did this year after year. That's why Jesus gave us this meal. Except when Jesus gave us this meal, he said, don't look at the lamb that took away uh, those sins, that set those people free. Look at the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, that sets you free. But then there's a third lamb. And this lamb um, was alluded to in Nancy's prayer. Uh, at that time, there was a great expectation amongst the Jewish people that God was going to finally send someone to free them, 
not just from their political oppressors, which was like Rome and whatnot, but God was going to send a servant who would come and free them from everything that actually has them bound up, from, um, from just the worst of it, from everything including sin and death. And there was a book at that time that was like number one on the bestseller list, uh, and it was the second section, the middle part of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet, and God had put his word into his heart, into his mouth, and onto his pen. And Isaiah looked forward to a day where God would send his servant to finally free his people and all people for all time and space. He looked forward to a day, to this day, to this good Friday, to this Friday that would change the world. Um, So when Isaiah wrote, Isaiah wrote about a time he didn't know about yet, but he looked forward to. He looked forward to the day that Jesus would be unjustly um, accused and condemned. The day where Jesus would be mocked and stripped naked and spat on and humiliated and laughed at. He looked forward to the day where Jesus would be whipped and beaten and scourged where he would have to bear the weight of his own instrument of death all the way up to hell, to, only to be nailed to it, only to die there in humiliation. Isaiah looked forward to this day because Isaiah knew what it was going to mean. Listen to what, listen to what Isaiah wrote. He wrote, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living. That means he was cut off from life. He died. He was cut off from life stricken for the transgression of my people. Transgression is a fancier word for sin. That's all it means. To be stricken with something, to be stricken with an illness, is to come down with the illness. It's to be infected by the illness. It's to take that illness onto uh, himself. When, When Isaiah writes that he was stricken for our transgression, what he means here is that is that this servant took on our transgression, took on our sin. Um, And when he died, he was cut off from life. The word there that Isaiah uses for cut off, it, it can also be translated taken away. What Isaiah is saying here, what John is saying, is that when Jesus dies, he takes on our sin, and when he is cut off from life like that, what he is doing is he is taking away our sin. He is bearing it on himself and he is taking it away. So that is no longer ours to deal with, but it's his to deal with. Listen to how else uh, Isaiah, Isaiah continues. He writes, Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. By his bruises we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. 
We have all turned to our own way, whether we know that or not, whether we feel the chain that we forged in life or not. We have all turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him our capital S sin, and he has bared it away in our place and on our behalf. He took it on. He is our substitute. He is our representative, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb who was sacrificed and died in our place on that Friday that changed the world. The Lamb whose blood was shed and whose blood covers us and makes us free. The Lamb who took our sin, our iniquity on himself and so takes it away. What can wash away my sin? What can forgive me my sin? What can pick it up and remove it out of the way so it's not mine to deal with anymore. Listen to how the Apostle Peter puts it in the New Testament. He says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might live. We might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, I'm not the only one who borrows from other people. So that free from sins, he bore our sins so that we could be free from them. He took on the change that we forged in life so that, so that we could live free forever. So you, so that you don't have to carry the weight anymore, so that you can be free from it, so that you don't have to hold the guilt, so that you don't have to be bound by the chains that you forged in life link by link and yard by yard, so that you can be finished with it. We haven't gotten to Friday yet. The day that Jesus died, listen to how um, John records it. In case you forgot the context, in case you forgot the frame, John says, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. This is about freedom. This is Independence Day. He writes, and it was about noon. Do you know what else happened about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover? A stone throw away in the temple, the lambs were slaughtered. About noon, the Lamb of God was about to be slaughtered. Pilate, who was the Roman in charge, said to the Jews, here is your king, and they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but the emperor. Then he handed him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side, with Jesus in between them. And there he was for hours, dying on that cross. The details of the crucifixion are too horrible to talk about, but it's a death um, that is uh, the level of pain, the inability to breathe, the bones coming out of joint, the exhaustion from trying to push yourself up and take breaths while you're, 
while your insides are filling up with fluid, your lungs are filling with fluid, your heart is being surrounded with fluid, you can't breathe anymore, all the while becoming fully dehydrated. Jesus cries out, I am thirsty. And someone comes with um, a sponge with sour wine, puts it on a stick, puts it up to Jesus. Um, and then John writes, when Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What can wash away my sin? My friends, it is finished. Your sin has been washed away. You don't have to carry the guilt, the chains, the weight of it any longer. What God is saying to us on this Friday is that you don't have to spend any more time looking for forgiveness, seeking it out from religions, seeking it out from self-help books, seeking it out from making yourself better. You don't have to seek it out because it's finished. You have been forgiven. It means that you don't have to make atonement for yourself anymore. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to um, make amends for it. You don't have to reconcile yourself to God. You don't have to even show yourself worthy. It is finished. The guilt you carry, the things that you can't shake, the shame you can't escape, the regret you can't get past, it's finished. All of your attempts to forget, to walk away, to wash it for yourself, it is finished. There's nothing you can do and there's nothing you can undo because it is finished. What can wash away my sin Nothing but the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. And so what do you do? Nothing. You can't do anything. You can't add to it. You can't subtract to it. You can't show yourself worthy. You can't pay for it. You can't do anything. So what do you do? Nothing but believe it. Nothing but receive it. Nothing but trust yourself into the hands of this Lamb of God who has taken away your sin. You could do nothing but believe in Jesus and trust yourself into his blood, that his blood actually covers you, that his blood has covered your doorpost. That his blood has actually set you free from the things that have kept you bound up. All you can do is believe and trust that this Lamb of God is not just the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world, but he is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of you. If you are someone who uh, has never believed this before, has never trusted in Jesus and trusted yourself into his blood like this, maybe now is your time to do that. Maybe today is the day where you entrust yourself to Jesus and say, yes, I believe in you. I believe that your blood covers me. I believe that your death is for me. If you've never believed that before, never said that before, never prayed that before, maybe today is your day to do that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead you uh, in a prayer right now. And um, if you have done this before, I'm going to lead you in this prayer also. There's nothing magical about these words. This is just a prayer that entrusts ourselves, entrusts our lives into God's hands uh, and into Jesus' blood. 
the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you gave your life so that we could live. We thank you, God, that you have sent your Son so that through his death we could find life, so that through his blood shed we could find freedom from sin and from death and from everything else that keeps us bound. Lord God, I believe in you and I trust in you and I entrust myself into your hands. I entrust myself into your blood. I no longer trust my own blood, my own sweat, my own tears, my own work to wash away my sin, but I trust yours instead. And I pray, Jesus, that you would come uh, and wash me clean and change me into a person who lives like this and who believes like this and who trusts like this and prays like this and serves like this. Thank you, Jesus, that you have answered the question for us, not with words, but with your life. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but you and your death for us. We entrust ourselves to you now as we sing. Amen.